Never would have imagined it would end this way. Well, maybe at first, but certainly not now. There was just something different about him. The way he spoke with Scripture was such authority and power. I just never heard anything like that before. And then the miracles. The lame were walking or even skipping and running through the marketplace. And then old blind Bartimaeus, seeing and reading down at the library. Then the feeding, taking one small meal and feeding over 5,000 people. He was just bringing this new life and hope to people that hadn't had it for centuries. He was doing it for me too. We just had to know if Jesus was really who he said he was. And by we, I I mean Nicodemus, myself, and and a small group of other Pharisees. We just knew Jesus had to be from God. Now the others, they saw more of a threat to the system. Got a good thing going here. This carpenter peasant's going to ruin everything. All these talks about how they're going to get rid of him. Well, we just felt like we had to know for ourselves. So we drew straws, and Nicodemus was chosen to go meet with Jesus. We chose a spot at night so nobody could see them. And when he came back, he was telling us about what Jesus said and how he said it. And was talking about this God love and how he wanted to save the world, not condemn it. Now, honestly, I'm kind of in the condemning business. Following rules, judging others. That's kind of what Pharisees do. But this new redemptive kingdom was so life-breathing. I just couldn't wait to see what he was going to do next. That seems like such a long time ago. I swear I, I was gone the day they took the vote that doomed him. Before I caught wind of it, the Sanhedrin had already paid off fake witnesses, hired that weasel Judas, and the soldiers were getting their weapons. Before I knew it, he was beaten beyond recognition and was dragging that cross through the streets. We tried to catch him, and we could see him from afar, and I feel foolish now, but I was just thinking, come on, Jesus. Use your godlike power and just supernaturally disappear or call some angels down and pull those spikes out and bring yourself down. Nick was trying to console me, but I was like, Nick, it's not over. As long as he's alive, there's still hope. There's still hope. Come on, Jesus, pull yourself off. But then skies started to darken. And we could hear him call out, and he became motionless. And then a soldier grabbed his spear, and he shoved it into the side of his ribs. That's, that's when I knew it was over. I stood in that painful silence. Something in me said, you've got to do something. And then Nick reminded me that my family had just purchased a, a tomb. So uh, I used my political influences, and I, I went and talked to Pilate and asked if I could have the body of Jesus. And with some negotiating, he, he agreed. So there we were, Nick and I, handling the corpse of the one that brought life to us. We just sat, and I looked at his twisted, motionless body, and it was almost a sight too horrible to bear. As the tears started rolling down, I looked at his face that we used to look so forward to seeing. Now this battered mask of pain 
just laid limp on his chest. Ribbons of dried blood on his forehead from that ridiculous crown those soldiers put on him made of thorns. That huge gash in his side was still oozing fluids and stuff. I just looked at him and he just looked like this lifeless rag doll just pinned to a tree. So it was a little odd and a little frightening we were handling the body of Jesus, but as quickly and as respectful as we could, we were going to take him down off that cross. The weight of him on the cross had enlarged the holes in his wrists that we could just take his arms off without even having to remove the spikes. Spike through his feet was pretty hard to get out, but eventually we were able to extract it from the wood and his flesh. With the help of some onlookers and even a few of the Roman soldiers, Nick and I picked up the body of Jesus and we carried him to the tomb. It was weird because we didn't even see any of his disciples there. We prepared his body for burial and we wrapped him in some fine linens. And we laid him there in the tomb and we just sat back, gazed at him. I ordered everyone to leave the tomb. And I stood in front of it as they rolled the stone in front of the opening. You never would imagine that this was how it was going to end. I mean, he warned us, but I, I sometimes couldn't separate the parable from the fact. I mean, the temple still stands, but yet he's here dead. Maybe over time, I'll, I'll, this will be, be a distant memory. But you're, you're hoping this would have been different. As I walked away from the tomb, I had this thought that just wouldn't escape me. Now what? What are we going to do now? When someone was crucified in that time, their body would actually stay on a cross for days after their death. And it was Rome's way of saying, this is what happens when you cross power and authority. This is when you try to buck the system. We will show the world what happens. But this was a different weekend. There was a celebration, a Jewish festival, uh, the Passover. And it was, it was unceremonial to leave dead things out. And so they had to take Jesus' body off the cross. Now, usually, when someone died this kind of criminal's death, they would take the body off after days and they would imagine wheelbarrow them to this place that was the town dumpster. It was in a valley called Ghana. And it was a place that seemed to be always be on fire. And they would just go and, and dump the bodies there in this, this dumpster. But, but as we heard, this was, was different. This Joseph of Arimathea, this secret disciple who was wealthy and connected, he went to Pilate, and, and most likely he bribed him. And he asked uh, if he could have the body. And so Nicodemus and Joseph, they, 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 they took the body off of the cross. And when they did, they prepared his body for burial. And how that happened is, John tells us that he took myrrh, ironically, if you remember the story, started in Bethlehem, myrrh and other aloes and, and spices, and they would rub it onto the body. 
And what scripture tells us is after they, they prepared the body, they, would, they wrapped it with linen cloths and, and they, they put it in, in, into a tomb. Now, why did they put the spices on there? Because the smell of death was there. And, and with these tombs, what would happen is uh, they would have a family tomb and they would almost be like shelves. And you would put someone into the tomb and you would actually add someone in later. But this was a new tomb. This was the first person to go in there. They had the spices because the smell was so bad after a while. Now, as I was thinking about that this week, I don't know if you have ever had any contact with, with junior high boys before, but there is a smell that they have. The day just kind of lingers around them, kind of like Rugrat that's just there. And it doesn't matter how much Axe cologne that you put on, that smell it's still present. Now, junior high boys, if you're here today, I was there too. Instead of Axe, I had Dracar cologne that I would, uh, you, remember, you know, Dracar, and it smells pretty good. Silk shirt in the 90s, playing basketball, no telling what kind of smells were coming from me. Dracar, shh, it's just as good as a shower. Or sort of like Starbucks that I went to this week, and I know, apologize to my mom up front for the bathroom humor. I went into the bathroom and the smell just hit me, okay? And it doesn't matter how much fresh linen Lysol you spray, okay? I, when it just hit me, I wanted to just announce to the whole Starbucks, it wasn't me, okay? <laughs> but there it was. And it just, when you mix two things together, I don't know if it gets worse. They did it to mask the smell, wrap it in linen cloths, put them in a tomb, and then they put a stone over the top there. Now, what they would do is two years later, they'd actually go back to the tomb. And by this time, the body had decayed and the flesh had all been eaten away and there were just bones left. And they would take the bones of the person and they would put them in a box a bone box, and it was called an ossuary. In fact, they found an ossuary about, uh, I think it was about 12 years ago, and some people believe this is James, uh, the brother uh, of Jesus, his ossuary, his bone box. They found thousands of these from first century Israel, uh, these different bone boxes that are, that are all around. Now, Joseph was a secret disciple. We heard that, and he was hoping to see the kingdom of God. But when Joseph put the spices around Jesus' body, when he wrapped him in cloths and he placed him in a tomb, he walked away very sad that day. Why? Because Jesus was dead and dead things don't come back to life. They stay dead. Now, let's be super clear here. There was no Ryan Seacrest on the scene of the tomb uh, on Sunday morning, okay? There was no one counting down, okay? When the sun came up, if you've ever been to a cool sunrise service, there was no one there going, 10, 9, 8, here he comes, he's coming out of the tomb, woohoo! There was no one there because he was dead. The disciples, where were they? Did they hire a band? Did they wait for the crescendo moment? Here comes the stone, it's coming, woo! No, they were scared, afraid. They were most likely hiding at this point. In fact, we, we heard this story of two disciples in Luke chapter 24. They, they said, we're out of here, we're done. This thing, game over, we're going back home to Emmaus. And they started to, to walk back there there in Luke. And they, they, the, the, the phrase that they used is they had this conversation. You know, we believed and we thought a lot about this Jesus. We thought he was a prophet, a powerful, he's powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. 
We had hoped that he was going to be the one that would redeem us. We had hope. Mark even tells us that Mary um, and, and, and some of the ladies, they came and they followed Joseph. They knew exactly where the body was. They probably saw him prepare the body. And Mary's just in shock, like everyone else is. She loved Jesus. Jesus had made such an impact on her life. And, and, and just the mourning and the shock, she was just, as many of us do, were in that state going through the motions of, of, of what to do next. I, I saw this picture that from a couple weeks ago in the tournament. Uh, Villanova, they lost in the second round of the tournament. And this sweet girl, she's playing the piccolo, and it's the end of the game. And then they lost to NC State in the second round, and here she is. She is just weeping and playing the piccolo at the same time. And she's just trying to get through the end. And of course, the TV catches her, and there is this picture of her just trying to, to get through. Fortunately for her, she got her a trip on to to Jimmy Fallon later on, and that's a little redeeming there. But that's kind of the way I see Mary. She was going through the motions and just, what's next? And she goes to the tomb, and she wants to prepare the body of Jesus. Now, some people say, there's a reading that says, well, didn't Joseph already do that? And there's some questions on why she went back to it. And, And the thing that I've come up with, and this is my theory, she knew, Mary knew, that two guys had prepared the body, okay? And she was going to do it the right way, all right? Okay, and sometimes, guys, we don't do things the right way. We can confess today. But she was, she was going back, and, and, and she was going to unroll the body uh, the, from the, the linen cloth, and she was going to prepare and, and, and to, to get Jesus ready. Now, I thought about that. That's a lot of love, folks, to be able to do that. Two days in the tomb, who do you love like that in your life that you'd be willing to, to go and to handle the, a, a body like that? Uh, who in your life? Just scroll through the names. The, the, it's a very, very short list if there's a list at all. In fact, I asked my wife, I was thinking about this question all week, and I said, so, so babe, uh, would, uh, would you be willing to do that for me? Do you love me like that? There was a long pause long, long pause. And it was concerning. I'm not going to lie to you. And then she said, oh yeah, absolutely. But the pause is what got me there. But that, I mean, that's a lot of love. But when she went to the tomb that day, when she went to the tomb that day, she expected to find a body. Because when dead things die, they stay dead. They stay dead. Now, and this is what the story, this story is all about. It's about the smell of death in our lives. And there's some people that are here today, and they know exactly what that is like. You're dressed up here. You're with your family. It's going to be a great day. Maybe if the rain holds off, we'll have an Easter egg hunt and have some great food for lunch. You're going to take some awkward family photos in just a few minutes. But the reality is there is a lot of brokenness in our world, and there's a lot of brokenness in our lives and in our hearts. I saw that firsthand. There's a woman that came in to the office. She knocked on the door this week, and a sweet woman. And she, she really just wanted to talk to a pastor and to have someone to listen to her. And she began to tell the story of her life and just the things and mistakes that she had made and just she, sobbing tears. And, and I didn't have to really say anything. I just was trying to encourage her. I got to pray with her afterwards. But the things that she was saying was, I know, 
I know this is my own doing. I know these are the choices that I have made, and I'm living with the consequences of my choices. You see, a lot of our brokenness, uh, they come from other people's choices. And the collateral damage that other people, because of, of their sin, and that's what we're talking about here. We can't appreciate this day until we talk about this word sin. And, and other people have sinned, and because of their choices, there's been damage done in our lives. And we see that around the globe, and we see that in our own families, in our own relationships, in our own lives. But the truth is, there's some choices that we've made. There's some things that we have decided, some things that we have done that has caused brokenness in our lives and pain to others and hurt. James talks about this in James chapter 1, 14 through 15, and it says this, temptation comes from our own desires. And when we're enticed and we're dragged away and these desires, they, they give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. When we are drawn away, and one translation is, is by our own lusts, our own desires, our own appetites for things. And, and a lot of times it starts out this way. You say something is enticing. It looks good. It's, it's too powerful to resist. You can't turn away from it. And at some point you're like, no, 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 no. No, I'm not going that way. I'm not doing that. I'm not going there. I'm not. No, no. Well, maybe. No, no, no. Okay, well, well maybe just once. All right. I will. And temptation gives birth. It shimmers, it shines, and it's like a gloss to it, and there's just like this twinkling bell. And suddenly, out of nowhere, we're hooked. And, and, and this, this sin in our lives, these, these desires, they don't just cause damage in our hearts and our lives. They, cause, they don't just cause damage at our jobs. They don't just cause things uh, to be ruined like relationships. It doesn't just put you in jail sometimes, uh, our sinful actions. We know it does so many different things. It destroys people's lives. It causes loss of opportunity in, in, in so many different ways. And the process kills. That's what the scripture says. It gives birth to death. And what we learn to do with this is this. We rub some spices on it. We cover it up. And we put it away so no one can see it and no one can know about it. You see, the Bible, it, it tells us that, that we're not just bad people because we, we are bad people, right? Okay, now we all want to say we're good. But truth be told, when we ever cover something, the Bible tells us that no one is good. We're not bad people. What this sin does to us, it makes us dead people. Okay, that's what scripture tells us, says you were dead in your sin and your transgression. That's true for everybody in this room. And in Romans, it says this, the wages of sin is death. It's death. Now, if you're a golfer, this is the best time of year, by the way, uh, for sports. I'm just going to throw it out there, and I apologize for the sports illustrations. It's on my mind this week. You've got this confluence of rivers that are coming together. It's the NCAA tournament finals tomorrow and the weekend, and you've got the Masters, which is the greatest week of all next week, and you've got opening day of baseball tonight, the Cubs and the Cardinals. Woo! It's, gonna, it's just a great time of sports, and I just apologize for my enthusiasm for it this morning. But if you're a golfer, or if you've ever played golf, or if you've heard people talk about golf, or if you've gone to top golf before, you know that most people fall into two categories, okay? You are either someone who slices the ball, 
It goes way to the left, okay? And I'm not talking about a little bit. I'm talking about a lot of bit, okay? Like houses and children and dogs beware, okay? Or it's, actually, that would be the left. That would be a hook, all right? Thank you. Uh, you knew where I was going. And a slice would be to the right, okay? Now, I hit a hook, a big hook sometimes, okay? It's not just a draw. It is a hook, okay? It goes way to the left. Now, love to play. Sometimes you get paired with people on the golf course, which is always a good story, okay? You get paired with random people. A couple of weeks ago, playing with my friend Greg, and this random guy got paired with us, okay? Very odd dude, and uh, he was really excited about the company and was very chatty, which is not always good for the golf course. Uh, excited, and uh, it's always a funny thing when you're a pastor and you play with random people because inevitably, at some point in the round, they are going to ask the question, and I honestly try to avoid this question because I know it's going to get awkward after that. And you see, the golf course is a place where people, they drink a little, they say, they get really mad, especially if it's going this way and this way, way far directions. And uh, this guy had said a few things, and, 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 and then the question came, so what do you do? <laughs> and then it gets awkward. I was like, well, you know, before a youth pastor, I'd tell you, well, I work with kids, you know, I help the kids out. <laughs> but, you know, I told this guy, you know, well, actually, I'm a pastor. And I was with another pastor friend of mine and said, and, and he's a pastor too. And, uh, and then it got really quiet <laughs> because he's scrolling through his mind. What exactly did I say? <laughs> and a couple of holes later, uh, he, I told him, you know, I was trying to just encourage him to relax. You know, it's okay. And I hit a, I hit a, a hook into the woods. And uh, this guy says, I'm over in the woods looking for the ball. I'm frustrated. And apparently he found a sense of humor because he was like, hey, pastor, are you looking for a hooker over there in the woods? <laughs> Which I didn't know if I should laugh or not. Uh, but it was funny. <laughs> now, if you have a, a slice or a hook, you, you learn to live with it. You learn to live with it. And so what you do is this. If, if, you, if you hit the ball way to the right, you begin to align your life, you align your, your, your feet way over toward the houses over here because you think, oh, it's going to come back. And a lot of times it works unless you just finally hit the one straight and it goes into somebody's pool, okay? So me, I'm, I'm having to align way over here to the right so it'll, it'll come back. And I think that's what a lot of people do. They learn to live with their slice or their hook. And they just learn to live with those things. And they want to hit it straight so badly. They want their relationships. They want their heart. They want their life to be different. But it's just not. It's just not. And, 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 and the honest truth is, they're not different because we're not different. We're not different. And, and this is just impossible to get our minds wrapped around. It was impossible for the, the disciples to get their minds wrapped around. You see that we know the story that Mary actually goes and there's an empty tomb there. She runs back to the disciples. He's gone. It's an empty tomb. And what do the disciples do? What do they do? It tells us. It says they rush back to the tomb to tell the 11 from the tomb, the 11 disciples and everyone else what had happened. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and several other women who told the apostles what had happened. But the story sounded like nonsense. It sounded like nonsense, but dead people don't, they don't, they stay dead. So they didn't believe them. And, and why was it nonsense? Because the disciples believed, like a lot of people 
around the world believe, and maybe a lot of people in this room believe. Jesus was a great man. He said some great things. He said some cool things. And I love some of the sayings that are there. Awesome stories. This Jesus was amazing. He was probably from God. He was probably a prophet. But he's dead. And dead people stay dead. This is nonsense. This is nonsense. And if the story stopped there, that would be it. That would be it. We go on with life and, and try to hear more good things and, and, and fill our lives with good things and try to be better people. But that is not the end of the story. Now, my son is, has really picked up this habit that I'm frustrated. It's not, it's not a bad habit. I'll just relieve your mind now. He, he started to collect some cards. Now, it's a little disappointing, but he, he's, starting, he's starting to collect Pokemon cards, okay? Now, I don't, I'm going to be honest, probably with most of you in the room have no clue what this Pokemon is all about, okay? There's these anime characters and they cards that battle each other. And what was just disappointing to me is that, you know, he's collecting these cards. And, and I flashed back to when I was a kid, his, his exact age. And when I would collect cards, it was baseball cards. And I would have these sheets, and there were about nine slots that you would put the, the baseball cards in, and you would collect them. And he asked me, and I gave him some sheets for my, and I took my baseball cards, and now he's got this notebook of Pokemon cards. And a part of me has died inside, but I just wanted to love baseball. There's something about baseball, it's so, it's so dramatic. And there's poetry involved. If you've ever seen the movie Field of Dreams, you know about that. And how, how just there's lines that just, uh, just come out uh, and, and just moments that are, are magical. And as we think about opening day today, and I know this is going to be the year for the Cubs. I know it is. I can't think about this day without thinking about a baseball moment. And it's one I've shared with you before, and I just want to remind you of it. Back in 1988, it's like the first World Series I ever remember. The Dodgers are playing the A's. Okay, the Oakland A's. And the A's are the giants. They're just the, the ones that are, are, are supposed to win. They're the bullies. They're the bash brothers. The Dodgers are the nobodies, the, this, the ragtag bunch of, of people that are just put together. They had no chance. They had no chance. The first game is played. And maybe you remember this back in 88 if you were alive then. Some of you weren't. Uh, they were playing each other, and the Dodgers get down, and it's four to three, and it's in the ninth inning. And who comes in for the Oakland A's but the closer who never loses, who he just strikes out everybody, and he's just, he's a closer, and, he, and he's got a mullet of, of awesomeness. His name was Dennis Eckersley, and uh, he comes in, and everyone basically is like, okay, game's over. Game's over. In fact, you probably, like some of you at sporting events, people started, where's my keys? Uh... Where's my hat and my, let's get that souvenir cup and, and we're out of here. And, and they started to walk out and they started to leave. People started to leave the home field of the Dodgers. They were leaving, okay? Because the game was over. The game was over. And of course, what's the story? What's the, Kurt Gibson comes out and he's hobbled and he's injured. He has one at bat for the whole series. And what does he do? He hits a home run off of the great, one of the greatest closers of all time. They win the game. The place goes nuts. Wow. Now, what I love about the story, a couple of things that I want you to remember. In, in right field, if, if you were to, to check, see that video, okay, in right field, as that ball is going over the fence, you see lights from the parking lot. 
that people had given up and they were leaving. And I imagine those lights are coming on, the brake lights are hitting. When the radio call from from the great Jack Buck comes up and, and he says this, I don't believe what I just saw. I don't believe what I just saw. Poetry. Then Vince Scully is calling the game. And it's so dramatic. You just know he's into it. And he's a high fly ball into right field. She is gone. And then there's just this noise of crowds cheering and cheering. And, and it's just pandemonium there at Dodger Stadium. And when all of that's kind of died down, out of the emotions of the moment, he says, in a year that has been so improbable, the impossible has happened. I have such good news for you today. The impossible has happened. Dead things don't stay dead when Jesus is around. He didn't just live back then. He lives today. He didn't let the stone stay there. He rolls the stone back. They uncover the cloth, and he is alive today. And that, my friends, is the best news that we could possibly have today. But God is so rich in mercy that he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. Now, there are a lot of people in this room that they would say, you know what, just Jesus. Like a lot of things that he said. He was a good man. He was good prophets. He, he's got some cool stories, some cool miracle things. I, I can kind of believe some of those things. But unless you believe that he did the impossible, that he was raised from the dead, then this whole thing is pointless, Okay? This whole thing, this whole gathering for church and getting together, it's pointless. Paul tells us this, it's foolishness. If Jesus didn't, wasn't raised from the dead, it's foolishness. And I want so badly for you to understand and to, to know that. And I wish that I could, I could prove it to you. And I could just show this, there's the evidence, and here it is. And, and if I sent you to, to Jerusalem today, and maybe went to the tomb site where they, they would, someone might think that this was a tomb, and I showed you the empty grave, and I would show you, well, there's no ossuary, folks. There's no bone box, okay? There are no bones. Some of you might believe, and maybe some of you are very analytical thinkers, and I would just encourage you. There's a great book, The Case for Christ, and it gives a lot of, it's, it's an atheist perspective on conversations and his journey to find out whether this Jesus was, was really who he said he was. And he has these different these different uh, recordings and different interviews that he does. And he finally, at the end of this journey, he, he declares for himself that Jesus Christ was who he says, that he did die, that he did raise from the grave. And we could talk about all those things, but you know what? I think the greatest evidence is that Jesus did what he did, that Jesus did was he, he was raised from the dead. It's the witnesses. It's the people. It's his disciples. Now, who wrote Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And where were those people at when all this went down? Were they at the grave? Dead? Nine. No. They were scared, and they were bewildered, and they were confused, and they were huddled in an upper room. And guess what? When they wrote the story, did they leave that part out? If you were writing a story, would you tell those parts of the story about yourself? No, but why did they say it? Because they were afraid. They were bewildered. They were confused. This is all the truth. 
They didn't believe. They thought he was a great man, but they didn't think he was who he said he was. And they certainly didn't think he could be risen from the grave. But what happened? Jesus, he did show up. The stone did roll back. Jesus came out and he appeared to his disciples and to 500 other people that the Bible tells us. And when the disciples, they put their hands on the wounds and they saw from themselves, they were changed forever. When they went from just believe that to trust in this Jesus. They were changed. We see that throughout Scripture. In Acts, what happens? When Jesus leaves the scene and the Holy Spirit fills the room and the place, and these disciples, they're different. They start to preach. Peter preaches his first sermon. And what does he preach? Is he the coward that was up in a room that was scared to death? Was he the guy that was denying Jesus? No. He looked at a crowd, a huge crowd. We're talking about thousands. And he said, this is what happened about this Jesus. He didn't say, hey, he was a good man or a good teacher, and here's some good things that he said. He said this, you guys crucified him. You guys crucified the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and he is alive today. When when the, the authorities grab this Peter later on, and they have them in front of them, the same people that killed Jesus, the same people, the Sanhedrin, that crucified Jesus. And they have a, he has a chance to, to just say, oh, I don't, I don't know about this Jesus. What name did you do this in? And what does he say? It is by the name of Jesus that this man is healed. It is by the name of Jesus, the one that you crucified. And now God is resurrected and is, is raised to life. The witnesses, they're the ones, that the, the, the best testimony to this, this resurrected Jesus and the life that we can live. Transformed lives. Have you ever been warned about someone before? You know, you go to meet somebody and they say, okay, I'm going to pull you to the side real quick. Before we go meet such and such, I just need to tell you a few things, okay? I just need to tell you a few things about, and I, and I had, remember this in Florida. You're going to go, you're going to meet this guy named Ed. Now, when we meet Ed, okay, you know, he might say some things that are kind of not good, and he might say some mean things to you, and, and he might even say some uh, dis- disparaging thing, and he's just kind of a, kind of a jerky attitude. And, but you know what? That's just old Ed. That's just Ed, okay? That's just the way he is. Let me just tell you today, what we believe is that old Ed doesn't have to be old Ed any longer. That you don't have to keep living with your slice or your hook and playing that. But God can change our lives. He can unroll the dead things and he can bring transformation for all of us. Why? Because he is risen from the grave. Now, we have a, uh, uh, I don't know if you know this, if you're a guest with us, you're actually uh, sitting in a, in a kind of a famous place. Uh, this is where a, uh, a television show was filmed in this very area here. And Garen and I were on TV once. Um, there was a show called What Not to Wear. Uh, have you ever heard of it before? It was on TLC with Clinton and Stacy. I think their names were. They were here in, in the foyer. And uh, they, they, they recorded this show. And uh, they had a, a young lady by the name of Dolly that was chosen for the, for the story. And Dolly is a part of our, our ministries here, and she goes, goes uh, attends here, and she's fantastic. I, I just want to 
show you a little bit. Uh, I don't want to show you a video, but I want to show you kind of the before and after. What Not to Wear is a show that takes people that don't wear cool and uh, trendy and catchy clothes. They kind of don't, don't dress the best, and they give them a makeover and transform their lives, okay? So here was Dolly before, okay? And uh, here was, was Dolly. Uh, here's after the makeover. Yeah, yeah. And so we filmed, they filmed this episode. It was pretty cool to see all the different things that they did uh, for her and had different people in our church that were interviewed. And, and you can actually look that up on, on YouTube or online. It's uh, season 10, I think episode 9. But the cool thing about Dolly's story, and she went through a transformation on that show. Um, and uh, what I love to hear about uh, Dolly's story is this. She said, you know what? People saw that episode. Like, man, what a transformation. You know, the, the outside transformation. But what she says is this. What, what happened on that show was the icing on the cake. It was the icing on the cake of her life. You see, Dolly's story, it started back in Nebraska. And, uh, and unfortunately... Uh, she suffered some abuse at the hands of a, of a family member, which left some scars on her, on her life and her heart. And that led her down a, a, a rough road at times. And, and she says this, you know, other people, they had a lack of respect for my boundaries in my body. And that led me to have a lack of respect for my, my boundaries in my, in my body. And, and she went through a time of, of partying and, and being away from God. And even though she, she grew up in church and she said, you know what? I knew that God existed. I knew that God existed, but she got busy with life. She got busy with pursuing the corporate world and things and stuff. And she, and she, would, she describes it this way. She would look into her, her, her core, her soul, and she felt like there was this black, that just covered her soul, just covered her, her up. And there were times that she would just sit in the corner and just will, want to will herself to die, is what came to mind. She went through some, some difficult relationships, but, but after going and giving birth to, for, to her two girls, uh, God started to get her attention. And she realized that there's some people that are depending on me in this world. And so I, I might need it to, to start to change some things. And so she said, you know, I, I, I just looked at my stash one day and I just, I just turned the other way from it. I knew that I had to in some ways kind of grow up. One day a coworker gave her this, this book and, and talked about how the impact it's made on, on his life. It's this book called Os, by Oswald Chambers called My Utmost for His Highest, amazing book. And a couple weeks after Easter, about a decade ago, a friend invited her to church. And uh, she began to slowly connect with God. And uh, it was her daughters that really helped her out with that as it kind of was a slow process. And one morning, uh, her little girl, Amber, three years old at the time, comes up and just gets nose to nose with mom and says, we gotta go to church. We gotta go to church. We need to be at church. Let's go to church, mommy. And of course, when, when your kids say that, it, it just, it, it pulls you that direction. And slowly she began to take steps closer and closer to God. And through the, a ministry called Celebrate Recovery, Jesus started to do 
a real makeover in Dolly's heart. And things were uncovered, the linen cloths were taken off. And one day it hit her, God, as, as God was working in her life, that without her even being aware that the black tar that covered her soul was gone. And she looked internally and it was replaced, she said, with a beam of sunlight that reminded her of light sparkling on the water. She said she allowed Jesus to come into her house, open all the doors and closets, windows, and let his light shine out the darkness. So when she went on the show and her exterior changed, it was just the icing of what God was doing on the inside. Now, there are a lot of people that think, well, if I just get a new this or a new that, a new hair, new clothes, new shoes, I'll feel better. I'll mask a little more. I'll hide a little more things. Let me prove the exterior of my life. And the interior is there's still black tar and there's still brokenness that hasn't been dealt with. And we can shove it out of the way. We can put it in a tomb. But the smell of death is still there. Let me tell you this morning, as we celebrate this Easter, I think about this song, He Lives. It's an older song we sing it in church. And the line goes this way. You ask me how I know. I know without a shadow of a doubt that he lives because he lives within me. He lives within me. The witnesses are, they're the testimony. They're the reason why we know. And maybe today you would say this. You know, I, I think Jesus was, was a great guy. He, was a, he said some good things. He's probably a prophet from God. You know, I believe this and that about God. And he kind of picked and cho chosen what the things that you like about him. But you haven't put your trust in Jesus. You haven't crossed the line of, I believe that, to trust in. And that is when transformation takes place. When we say, I'm going to follow you. I have, we sang it earlier. I have decided to follow you decided to, to live my life following after you, and I give my life to you. And maybe today you want to you wanna move from believe that to trust in Jesus in every area of your life. And you're tired of the smell of death and brokenness in your heart, and you want the light of Christ to come in. So if you would, just bow your heads and close your eyes. I want to lead you in a prayer this morning. And maybe you've prayed this prayer before. Maybe you've prayed to God before. And maybe you've given your life to God before, but you know that there are some areas that you're not trusting in Him. You're not following Him. And this morning, you want to just spend some time saying, God, I trust in you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your grace that we can ask for forgiveness this morning. We can come to you and say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And God, clean out to my heart and my life. Bring the light into my life. I want to be transparent with you. I'm tired of the tar and I want to follow you. So as I'm praying this morning, I just invite you to pray as I'm praying and, 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 and spend time with God this morning. Lord, we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. Lord, we thank you that today, Lord, we celebrate because we were dead. We were dead. You, 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 you were dead. But you are alive. 
And you can give us life today. You've given us life. You've given us freedom. You've given us light. You've given us purpose. You've given us hope. You've given us a future. God, and we celebrate that today. God, I want so badly for everyone in this room to experience that light in their life. God, there's some here that as they are praying right now, God, Lord, I pray that you would help them, Lord. God, if there's an area of their life that we need confession this morning, we can come to you and say, God, Lord, I'm sorry. I blew it. I, I messed up. There's things that, have, that I've caused pain and hurt and brokenness in others. And I, God, forgive me. Lord, help me. Help us all to move from just believing in, in, in you and, and that and these things, Lord, to trusting you, God. Lord, help those in this room that are maybe for the first time are taking a step, Lord, and trusting you and giving their lives to you. Lord, not just to take your name and not to act anything like you or to follow you, but to give their whole lives to you today. Lord, we pray that in trusting and believing that you are the God that does it. You are the one that saves. You are the one that brings salvation. And that we don't have to be our old self anymore. We can be new and alive in you. And Jesus, we thank you for that today. We praise you for that day. Lord, I thank you for those who are praying that for the first time. They're putting their trust in you right now, God. Lord, we celebrate you today. God, we lift these things in your name. And everyone said, amen. Today is a great day. Today is an awesome day. We are going to do some baptisms in just a minute, which is an ultimate symbol of, of what we just talked about. It's saying, my old life is gone. I used to be this and it used to be that. But now God has done a work in my life. And this is a step where I'm saying, I'm declaring to the world, I'm declaring to my family and my friends that I have decided to follow Jesus. And that old person is, is, is put into the water. It's symbolic. There's nothing we sprinkle in the water, I promise you. It's symbolic of what Christ has done in us. And he's risen us brand new in him, just like he was risen from the grave. And we celebrate that today. And we want you to celebrate that today. So as we're seeing today, as we're getting ready for baptism, maybe you want to remember your own baptism. Remember back to when, if you have, if you've been baptized before, remember that day when you said, Jesus, I have decided to follow you, give my life to you. And today we want to just recommit that to God and retell God what he's done for you. Let's sing, let's celebrate, let's worship, and let's get ready to to wave some horns and, and to scream in excitement this morning. Let's praise God.